How does the Times decide which of the ever-growing field of presidential candidates warrants what kind of coverage? I'm Susan Lehman. We're here with Carolyn Ryan, who is the politics editor, and we're going to talk about the Times campaign coverage. Well, this is an incredibly daunting election. You have the most candidates. I think we have 21 candidates now, 11 campaign reporters, the most candidates since 1972 in terms of a primary, and uh, I don't have enough bodies. How many reporters are um, assigned to campaign coverage? Well, there are... 11 campaign reporters, uh, but remember, some of those reporters have specialties. One of the big uh, focuses of our campaign coverage this time is money. They're talking about perhaps a $7 billion election. And uh, so we have two reporters digging into the super PAC world, the dark money world, the way that money moves, especially on the Republican side. You're not seeing it too much on the Democratic side yet. And then we have uh, reporters who have developed specialties in certain candidates and campaigns. And then we have reporters who primarily drive our online report. So we don't have people who can be everywhere. We've tried to kind of thematically divide up our staff. But it's, I, I will be honest, it is daunting every day. What are the themes that you use to divide the staff? Well, there is money, but there's also one of the issues that is percolating up on the left is income inequality and whether Mrs. Clinton is sufficiently responsive to those concerns. There's the Bernie Sanders campaign and what that has come to represent. Uh, Remember, this is sort of the first open election since the financial crisis, non-incumbent election, and there's still a lot of anger among some voters over the fact that people haven't been punished uh, after the bank bailouts. And there's still a lot of anger about wage stagnation and the kind of uh, disproportionate benefits of the economy going to the rich. So that's a huge theme. Uh, The super PACs, as I said. And then on the Republican side, there's a really interesting tension between the base of the party, which has a certain anger and frustration with all the institutions, including government, including the Republican Party establishment, and then the donors and the Republican elders and what they want the party to become. So how do you keep up with all this? What, what is your daily diet of reading? Are you besieged with press releases and memos from the campaigns? Or how are you keeping up? There's a lot of that. But there's also, I mean, I love reading, uh, reporting out of Iowa, out of New Hampshire. There's a very good uh, New Hampshire correspondent named James Pindle, and he has a lot of on-the-ground stuff. Uh, there's some good reporters out of South Carolina. I really like to hear the voices of voters, and you can get that more from reading the regional papers. I do all the things you'd expect, whether it's the Washington Post or Politico, and there's a Real Clear Politics, which is sort of an aggregator of this stuff. But I like to get a little bit beyond that because there's a way that Washington and New York think about politics and can be more refreshing to read the state stuff. So you're up reading at night, you're reading local newspapers and getting a sense of what voters across the country are thinking? At night, in the morning, at lunchtime, uh, you get accustomed to the rhythms of reporting and who is going to have fresh stuff. Uh, There is an incredible number of outlets, especially if you look at, say, the coverage of Hillary Clinton. There are candidate reporters at all of the outlets doing interesting stuff. So I try to keep abreast of that. But, you know, also my reporters are doing the same and sometimes they can go in depth. You can't do it all, but there is some stuff that feels uh, fresh and interesting that you want to stay on top of. And a, a sort of a big Uber question is, how do you avoid being manipulated by campaign strategists whose job it is to manipulate the media? 
Well, I mean, part of that is at the reporting level, uh, we have some very experienced people. Uh, they are very dogged about getting to the essence of stories. Um, they are not easily spun. Uh, we also have people who are very smart about data and about polling and about money. And so we're not easily taken in, you know, by the kind of attempts by the campaigns to lead us in one way or another. So, for example, Hillary seemed to have announced her candidacy several times. Right. So how does the Times decide which announcement? I mean, it seemed to be very carefully staged so as to get the most possible news bang. And I'm sure that you were aware of that. So then what do you do? I'm trying to remember the particulars. I think she put something out on a Friday ahead of her Sunday announcement. Um, this is something that I think we got some criticism for. She she decided to do a big rally, which they likened to an announcement rally in New York. And we covered it, and we covered it as a big rally, but we did not cover it as her announcement rally, which I think was quite vexing to the Clinton people who wanted a front page treatment and didn't get it. You know, candidates have become really smart about how to do this on social media. If you remember, Ted Cruz kind of tweeted that he was running and he was the first one to do it. And he sort of owned a news cycle, which is unusual for Ted Cruz, given his standing in the polls. Uh, but we try to do essentially, if you're announcing, we try to do a story that you're announcing and then we move on. You, you mentioned that that was probably vexing to the Clinton campaign. And I know there has been a lot of drubbing of the Times for its Clinton coverage. Do you want to comment on that? It's interesting. Some of this goes back quite a ways. Um, it goes back to Howell Raines and Bill Clinton and the editorial page and the, the sense among the Clinton insiders that uh, the editorial page was too tough on Bill Clinton and that they, as Howell Raines and Bill Clinton, as sort of fellow Southerners, had some kind of uh, bad blood between them. And uh, it goes way back to Whitewater and whether that story was disproportionately uh, played. But right now, most of the people who are involved in the coverage weren't here at the Times. Obviously, the Clintons are very sensitive to the New York Times and its coverage. And I think the Clintons feel like she gets more scrutiny and uh, more aggressive coverage. I think part of that right now is also the lopsided nature of the Democratic and Republican primaries. You have 17 candidates versus four or five, depending on how you count. So she is the big uh, front runner and she attracts a lot of attention and she's a, you know, global figure. So part of that is, I think, their frustration with the kind of saturation coverage. And yet the latest poll shows her in a statistical heat with Bernie Sanders. Yes. And the Sanders campaign, I'm sure, says, gosh, what do we have to do to get the New York Times to put us on the front page or pay attention to us as a serious force in the party? Um, the Sanders campaign, interestingly enough, we don't hear from them as much on that point, but we certainly hear from the Sanders supporters. They're incredibly well organized and very, uh, I would say, dominant on social media on the left. And they have sort of started to believe and to critique our coverage with the belief that we don't cover uh, Bernie Sanders enough. Uh, the truth is we cover him really regularly and uh, in really interesting ways. And Bernie Sanders is a fascinating phenomenon to me as somebody who's covered politics for a while and somebody who will make a big difference in this race. And I think we've tried to capture both Sanders as a senator and the candidate, but also what it means. What does the statistical heat with Hillary Clinton mean to you, given, as you say, she seemed to occupy the field by herself for so long and suddenly the polls are showing 
she's got a challenger. Well, it's interesting. Both in New Hampshire and Iowa, uh, there's sort of fertile ground for uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, partly because of the lack of diversity in those states, racial diversity, and also the message, I think, is really resonating in those places. So it is possible for Bernie Sanders to be quite competitive or even win in both of those places, which is kind of remarkable and fascinating. You know, whether he has the staying power, whether he has the national organization, whether he can reach out to other groups, Latinos, African-Americans, more women. That's what we haven't seen so far, and that will be a big challenge for him. All right. We've talked this far without mentioning Donald Trump. Yes. Trump. What is the general thinking on covering Trump at the paper? It's almost as if there are parallel campaigns, right? There's the Trump story, which uh, certainly during the debate in that whole week eclipsed everything else. But then there's another campaign involving all the other candidates and both how they interact with Trump, how they respond to his dominance, but also covering them and uh, their issues, their campaigns, their candidacies, their staffs. And we have to be really careful. I think we've done very well not allowing the Trump moment to overtake everything that we do. Um, I do worry about that. I do think uh, we had a smart story looking at how Trump actually helped Bush in a lot of ways on the Republican side because he sort of froze everybody else. And he has hurt candidates like Chris Christie and Ted Cruz. So he's famous for calling in on the Sunday news shows. Does he call in here? Do you get calls from Donald Trump? He's calling our reporters regularly, certainly. Uh, He is available. You know, his campaign is unusual and unique in that it really is essentially a media campaign. He goes on television. He talks to reporters. There are not big events, you know, with the exception of the Michigan event last time. He goes on debates. It's sort of a television and media campaign, and he he is very present. Part of what's interesting about Donald Trump in the New York Times is we have been covering him for, I think, about 40 years. I mean, we covered him as he was this brash young developer, and we started writing about him. I think one of our stories compared him and his good looks to like a young Robert Redford. That was a Times Insider piece that we just ran that got more readers than anything the Times Insider it's, has ever it's done. Amazing. You it's amazing. See what a magnet Trump is. People objected to the Times saying he looked anything like Robert Redford. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see what Robert Redford thinks about that. Um, New York has a particular relationship to a character like Donald Trump, and they're accustomed to his bombast and his whole kind of sometimes cartoonish presence in the city. But the nation sees him differently and they see him through The Apprentice and we have to find ways to write about him. You know, we're writing, for example, about his real estate empire and how it began, rounding out the picture of what people see because mostly they experience him on television. You've said before you wanted to keep the coverage from being sports-like or like a horse race. How do you go about doing that when you mentioned Trump, um, reporting on Trump and the real estate? Like what kinds of stories do you think work to round it, to to provide a kind of rounded coverage? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, there are sort of uh, genres of reporting that The Times is very good at. One is sort of Uh, The campaign trail story, getting a sense of how a candidate interacts with voters, what they have to say, what their style is. There are the deeper issues stories like what we've done on climate change. There are the sort of straight ahead candidate accountability stories like we, if you look at Jeb Bush's record in Florida, for example, or Scott Walker in the economy uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, But then there's something that I think the Times excels at, which is kind of the deeper biographical portrait. 
the vote that you cast for president is the most personal vote of any vote that you cast. You, you think about this person differently than you do a city councilman or a senator. I thought one of the most powerful stories so far was the story that Amy Chozik wrote about Hillary Clinton's relationship with her father. Uh, she talks a lot about her mother on the campaign trail, but her father was sort of a, a sarcastic, harsh, cold man in the way that she navigated that relationship, in the way that that sort of shaped her in some ways and, and gave her a, a drive and an ambition uh, was really revealing to me. And I would say similarly, the story about Jeb Bush and his conversion to Catholicism, it gives you a deeper picture of... Uh, Ted Cruz in his early life as a debater was one of those stories. Absolutely. So I feel like uh, readers really tend to respond to those stories because they remain intensely curious about these people, not just where they stand and what they've done, but who they are. So you have one reporter on Hillary full-time mm -hmm. for the duration of the campaign. Would, ha would switching off reporters in some way um, dilute the criticism that there's any kind of one-sided or one view of this candidate? Amy Chozik is the primary uh, Hillary Clinton reporter, but we have multiple reporters writing about Hillary all the time. So Patrick Healy, who covered Hillary in 2008, Maggie Haberman, who has covered uh, Hillary both in New York and as a national figure. So there isn't one view that kind of predominates. Um, and as you saw, Mark Leibovich uh, had a cover magazine story about Hillary. So I don't think that Amy, Amy is a superb reporter, but it's not as if her worldview is kind of defining Hillary entirely. Why is Jeb Bush described as a moderate in the, in the pages of the Times? And what, what does moderate mean in the Times vernacular? Jeb Bush is tenacious and consistent in his support for immigration uh, and for an immigration overhaul and his reluctance to bash people who come here illegally. Um, he has much more of a sort of Florida worldview on this. And he certainly, as he's married to a Mexican woman, he has a different view than I think a lot of Republican primary voters. Um, so that stands out. Uh, Jeb Bush, you know, is conservative in a lot of ways. The other issue that tends to uh, collide with the conservative base of the party is his um, support for Common Core, the educational standards. You know, John Kasich is another interesting figure in terms of going a little bit against the Republican grain right now. But so basically what you're saying is the Republican Party has moved to the right and so that the definition of moderate has changed. In yeah. And one function of the Trump, uh, whether you think it's a boomlet or a phenomenon or a lasting thing, is that they're moving further to the right, especially on immigration. You know, they're competing essentially for that voter. So, you know, if you look historically, the Republican Party has become a much more, it used to be sort of a center-right party, but right now, especially in the early primary states, is pretty conservative. All right. I, there's so many things to talk about, but we'll come back as the campaign um, continues on its endless path. But I want you mentioned social media, and a big part of the Times coverage has to do with live blogging and web coverage. And I wondered if you had anything to say about that or if it changes the nature of the way reporting works here. Absolutely. I mean, the um, we had kind of a a technological breakthrough and a journalistic breakthrough during the debate where we were uh, live chatting 
the debate in offering analysis, essentially allowing readers to listen in on a conversation between two very smart reporters reacting in real time to what the Republican candidates were saying during the Fox debate. And we had over a million people, uh, a million readers dropped in to listen, and we got phenomenal feedback and response. You have both the immediate and the important and interesting. So we've tried to create some channels essentially for Times Journalism to reach readers in real time. So one way is the live chat, which we'll do again for the CNN debate, which is September 16th. And then we've created something called First Draft, which is a live news stream. So from the Iowa State Fair, real live coverage of candidates speaking, candidates eating corn dogs, candidates eating pork chops on a stick, and Trump landing in whatever fashion he lands, then we'll have deeper pieces. So I think our readers want it all. I mean, the sense on social media and on our site is that people are uh, hungry, uh, given the kind of drama, but also the size of the field, to get some kind of urgent, immediate coverage of this, like, colorful election. Does the live blogging create problems um, involving separating news from opinion? I mean, you have reporters who are live blogging on things like a debate. How do you... We've had a lot of discussions about this, and um, each sentence from the chat that they utter is approved or not approved by an editor. It's a, a very fast process, but it's not... There is sort of a screening and vetting. Uh, what we try to stress to the reporters, and I think the reporters involved in the live chat did an excellent job, is that they are responding with analysis and context to what is happening in the debate, never making sweeping statements, never offering opinionated statements. That's not their role. We have a very robust uh, opinion section, but they are able to give readers a sense of whether a candidate has gone this way before, whether they're being unusually aggressive, what their record is like, what the interplay is like. And I think readers are hungry for that. What events are of big interest to you in the days ahead? Is there anything you're going to be watching with particular interest? Well, absolutely. I mean, the big question on the Democratic side is whether Joe Biden or somebody else gets in. It sounded like kind of fluky when he was first thinking about it, but he has um, been reaching out to supporters and some of his aides are trying to figure out if it's too late uh, to put the pieces in place. So that would be significant, not solely because of Joe Biden, but partly because what it would signal about whether Democrats think that Hillary Clinton is vulnerable. So that would be a major shakeup. And I think we'll know that by the end of the summer. The other um, big question looming over uh, the Republican field is, uh, does the Trump standing in the polls last? Is it real? The next debate will be very interesting. CNN is also going to have two debates, and they have to make choices about who is in which debate. Part of what we'll be watching there is who slips out and who rises. Carly Fiorina is clearly rising uh, based on her performance in the lower tier debate last time. Even though it feels like a relentless campaign right now, post-Labor Day, the amount of activity, the pace of activity, the discussion of issues, the collisions and clashes between these candidates and what they represent will just intensify. So between September and the end of the year, it will really be intense and sort of a sprint. And I think for our readers, quite illuminating. Excellent. We will be reading with care and interest. Thanks very much. Carolyn Ryan, Washington Bureau Chief and Politics Editor. I'm Susan Lehman at The New York Times. Thank you. Thank you.